One thing I learned from this project was just that English language acquisition teachers are these uncelebrated heroes um, who are doing just extraordinary work helping kind of newly arrived Americans fold themselves into our society, not only acquire our language, but a comfort level here, a trust that that will serve their transition into them becoming, you know, more full members of society. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with award-winning journalist Helen Thorpe about her most recent book, The Newcomers, Finding Refuge, Friendship, and Hope in an American Classroom. The book follows the lives of 22 teenagers from around the world over the course of one school year as they land at South High School in Denver, Colorado in a beginning-level English language acquisition class. Many arrive directly from refugee camps, some after having lost one or both of their parents. Together, their class represents a microcosm of the global refugee crisis as a whole. The Newcomers tells the story of what happens during the students' first year in America, and it follows the journeys of three families in particular, from Iraq, Burma, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, illuminating what life is like in refugee-producing parts of the world. The book was published by Scribner in 2017. Helen is also the author of Soldier Girls, The Battles of Three Women at Home and at War, published in 2014, and Just Like Us, The True Story of Four Mexican Girls Coming of Age in America, published in 2009. Helen Thorpe was born in London to Irish parents and currently lives in Denver, Colorado. Her journalism has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, Texas Monthly, and 5280, Denver's Mile High Magazine. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's get started. Hello, Helen. Thanks for joining us on Highest Aspirations. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, we're excited to talk. Um, so I want to start, start right off here saying that you've, you've written two other books, Soldier Girls, The Battles of Three Women uh, at Home and at War. Also, Just Like Us, The Story of Four Mexican Girls Coming of Age in America. But in order to write The Newcomers, the book we're going to talk about today, um, I find it fascinating that you, you embedded yourself in a beginner-level ELL class at Denver South High School. And I imagine that kind of research experience must have been different than, than the others that you had done for the other books. I'm curious um, as, as if you, you felt something, that that was something that was completely necessary to write this book, and how did that opportunity materialize? So it was an incredible opportunity, and the, the way that it materialized was I was um, I knew I wanted to write something about the experience of refugees resettling in my own hometown. And I was going around Denver, Colorado, where we accept lots of refugees and asking various people, you know, just to educate me about what was happening. The principal at South High School, a, a school that has particular expertise welcoming teenage refugees, um, said to me in our first meeting, she actually suggested this. Um, she said, you can, you, 
she had read my first book, which is about undocumented students. And she said, I read just like us, you'd be welcome in any classroom here in this building. I know you'll, you'll get these kids. So it, it, I've never in my career as a journalist had somebody, you know, invite me into a school or an institution like this. Usually I'm knocking on the door trying to seek access. So it, it was kind of an amazing opportunity to, to fall into my lab. Um, she was a 20-year veteran at the school. She had a lot of authority, and I think she both knew me and knew her kids and knew that her kids would just kind of, you know, melt the heart of any journalist, melt the heart of the reader. So I think she just had a lot of faith um, in her kids. The technical term for this kind of journalism is immersion journalism, and I, it is my favorite kind of, of journalistic project um, because you have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. So instead of like knowing the whole story arc and reconstructing something that's already happened, um, you're being invited to, to be in a certain place and then you just get to witness whatever transpires, who knows what's going to happen that school year. So it kind of felt like a big gamble or a risk, but I thought that I was putting myself in strategically a good place where I thought really interesting things might happen. Yeah, that's great. That sounds really exciting. But also, as you mentioned, I'm sure at times kind of, I, I was going to use the term horrifying. It's probably not horrifying, but like, well, how am I going to do this thing? And so yes. you, you talked about that immersion piece and I'm glad you mentioned it. it's immersion journalism because my next question was, you know, you you found yourself immersed in that classroom and and in that school community. What were those first few weeks like? I mean, I know as a teacher myself, like I would have for 17 years, I would have dreams before going to school, like the whole week before, and you'd be yeah. nervous. What was it like for you those first few weeks? Everybody was nervous that, you know, the teacher had that anxiety. Would he do a good job in the classroom? The kids were just absolutely petrified. The room that I was in, um, room 142, uh, it's called the Newcomer Center, and it's specifically designed for kids whose schooling has been interrupted. And generally, that's because of war, armed conflict. Many times they're coming straight from a refugee camp to this particular room. And they're placed there by the refugee resettlement agencies that work closely with the school. And all around them uh, in the rest of the building are students in AP classes or you know, higher level English language acquisition classes, mainstream classes. So it's a big thriving urban school, but it happens to have this special expertise. But for the kids in room 142, they're coming from countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Maybe their families are originally from say Burma, or in, in one case, um, there was a family with two sisters from Iraq showing up. So they're coming from war-torn, places, they don't have any English, and they're super confused by this high school environment. So they were just silent. And the kids were so scared and so afraid. Um, the room was so hushed. Uh, I, I literally called my editor and said, I cannot possibly write a book about this classroom. Nobody's saying anything. And I have no way to get to know them. I can't communicate with these kids. This is, you know, impossible to, to pull off. But he persuaded me to stay and see what happened over time. Yeah, well, I'm glad, I'm glad he did. And I'm sure that there are a lot of teachers and educators listening right now that are thinking, yep, that's what it's like at the beginning of the year, that it's that silent period is, is pretty normal. Um, but for someone coming in, and I, I can imagine it must have, it must have been, it must have been wild. Well, as you, as you say, the silent period, like when you said that phrase, I didn't even understand that that is a known 
um, uh, for a moment in language acquisition. Um, and so I learned over the course of the school year, both from the English language acquisition teacher in the room and some of the other professionals in the building who are kind of help, helping to explain this to me, that kids um, in, in teenagers in a school setting, like, a, like an infant learning their original language, are quiet for months before you know their their brains are kind of processing the sounds that they're hearing. They're trying to make sense of them, and then only then will they begin to um, try to make those replicate those sounds themselves when they know what they mean. Um, so the silent phase was was something I was learning about, and um, it was very mysterious. But then a few months in, suddenly kids were speaking in full sentences. I mean, it's a magical moment that English language acquisition acquisition teachers will be familiar with, but I was witnessing for the first time. And to me, it just seemed more miraculous that the kids were, were suddenly producing English sentences a few months later. Sure. And I think that's, that's going to be a great way to, to observe that without any, any preparation at all, just kind of learning what that thing is yeah. through experience. And I want to transition over, you're, you're starting to get into what it was like for the teacher. And that teacher is um, Eddie Williams, and you dedicate much of the first chapter to um, to describing him, and you describe him as uh, earnest, ardent, industrious, kind, and highly sensitive. And I'd love for you to read um, a quote from from the book from page 35, um, where you mentioned he's like a gardener. If you could read that to us, that would be great. Sure. Eddie Williams is an incredible teacher. I was honored to share his room. Um, he was like a gardener excited by seedlings. Where others might see students with limitations or students who were lagging behind their peers, Mr. Williams saw a room filled with kids who had lived through titanic experiences. Teenagers who could do anything at all once they accepted whatever sort of history they had brought with them and grasped the full extent of the opportunity lying ahead. He often told me that he felt lucky to work in a room like this one, a room that spoke of just how big the world was and how mysterious. And boy, that, I mean, that's a beautiful quote. And it sounds like a lot of the teachers that, that I know and that I work with and a few that, that have been, that have appeared actually um, on this podcast. I'm curious, when you read that quote, when you think about your time there, what are some elements of that quote and of Eddie Williams as a person that you feel like are necessary to work with these kinds of students? Well, his sensitivity, um, it, he's so highly sensitive that I think he was able to get to know each individual student in the room and what their needs were, what their private struggles were, the, the struggles that they couldn't even voice to him. Just, just one example is, um, there were two brothers in the room from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and they had seen horrific violence in their home country and then lived in a refugee camp. And in the camp, the older brother had been taken out of school and had missed several years of school, while the younger brother had remained in school the whole time. And here they were placed at the same grade level, sharing one room, uh, one classroom for the for the first time in their lives. And for the older brother, this was kind of humiliating. It was very hard for him to see his younger brother surge ahead since he had not missed any school uh, as he struggled to, to keep up. He never articulated that 
um, predicament for the teacher, but Eddie Williams could sort of look at the pair of them and see what was going on and knew he had to bolster the older brother's confidence, even as he encouraged the younger brother who became the star pupil in the room and surpassed everybody in terms of his accomplishment. So he was just very sensitive to the uh, personal individual struggles each student had that, that might inhibit their learning unless he was able to sort of help unlock that particular um, predicament and, and help them help them forward. Um, I'll say also that as a writer, I, I, I focused on Eddie Williams at the outset because at the beginning, he was the only person in the room who was saying anything at all that I could understand. So the kids spoke all these different languages. Um, sometimes a few kids would share a language and they could speak, but I had no idea what they were saying to one another. And I couldn't even really communicate successfully with them to say, I'm a journalist visiting your room. So sometimes they were mistaking me for a staff person. We had a lot of trouble at the outset. So the book um, has Eddie Williams as a main character initially, and then as the book goes on, he steps back, um, recedes a little bit as the personalities of all the kids that he's helping welcome into the United States um, start to become much more obvious to me. Yeah, and it's interesting to know that that was, I guess that makes sense, that that was just kind of an organic, natural decision. Yeah. I didn't think of that when I was reading it because there's a lot of focus on the teacher, but um, it is really nice, and we'll get into that a little later, seeing those students kind of blossom in them and them take over as, um, as some of the main characters. So yeah. I, I want to expand a little bit on the unique perspective you had as a class, and maybe it's the teacher in me who many times, I think for better or for worse, probably more for worse, I was just siloed in my room. I didn't have a lot of visitors I used to crave feedback as a teacher, but it was still like when there was someone else there, there was still this thing that there was someone else there. So you had a really unique perspective. And there, there were some parts where you said, you know, as, as the students started to, to speak more and you were able to get to know them on a different level, um, that, and also that you were able to hire interpreters, that you right. learned things about these students that, that Eddie Williams and others didn't know. And I'm curious what this tells you about the resources that are or maybe are not available to schools, the fact that you were able to like glean this important information and maybe teachers in the room, if you weren't there, wouldn't have had that. What, what does that tell you about sort of where we are? Um, well, one thing I learned from this project was just that English language acquisition teachers are these uncelebrated heroes um, who are doing just extraordinary work, helping kind of newly arrived Americans fold themselves into our society, not only acquire our language, but a comfort level here, a trust that, that will serve their transition into them becoming you know, more full members of society. So I thought Eddie Williams, the work that he was doing was extraordinary, but like me, um, he could not communicate directly in their home languages with the bulk of his students. So over the course of the year, in his room, he had about 22 kids. Some came and went, and the number was always changing. But there, there were 22 kids there for, you know, a good, good amount of time. Um, and they came from 11 countries, and they spoke 14 different languages. They used five different alphabets. And Eddie himself spoke English and Spanish fluently. So the Spanish speakers from El Salvador, he was able to ease their transition into the room using their home language. But for um, somebody coming from Burma originally who spoke Karen or somebody from the Congo who spoke Swahili or um, the two sisters from Iraq who spoke Arabic, he had no way to greet them in their home language. 
and it was quite a while before he could really um, interact with them. So he was doing immersion English. And um, after the kids got settled, I waited several months. I began hiring interpreters and then visiting them at home if they if they welcomed that. And so for, for to tell sort of the story of one family, um, these two sisters from Iraq showed up in the classroom. One was wearing a headscarf, the other was not. So it was unclear to me, were they a Muslim family? Did both sisters consider themselves Muslim? Or was there some other reason why one was wearing a headscarf and not the other? What had they lived through in Iraq while our country had invaded their country? All, you know, I had all these questions. I was so curious about the sisters, but we were literally using pantomime. Like I was trying to say, um, I, I write books, like, you know, trying to c communicate with them at this very, very basic fundamental level. Um, I did bring in uh, an interpreter who helped me explain that I was a journalist and asked um, if I could meet their mother. When I got to their home, um, they had prepared this Middle Eastern feast of um, specific cookies that they liked to make and laid out all these fruits and, and sweet things um, to greet me. They were, were making Turkish coffee um, to say, you know, you're welcome in our home. And I had brought pastries for them. And then the interpreter helped us actually speak. Um, and uh, in the next sort of two visits, their mom's story came tumbling out. She was so eager to communicate um, that she, you know, wanted to be understood as a friendly presence, that her family had sided with the Americans during our invasion. Her husband, who was Christian, had, had actually worked with our military. Um, and then been targeted and gone missing and was presumed dead. And then she and the girls um, were targeted as well and had to f they had to flee from Iraq to um, survive. As Iraq was falling into civil war and anybody who had participated, uh, aligned themselves with our military was, was targeted and um, there were assassinations happening all across Baghdad. So they fled for their lives to Syria. Um, and then experienced the Syrian civil war as well. And what I could see was a family that was seriously traumatized by living in two war zones. And so I was able to come back to the school and explain to the teacher um, what the girls had witnessed both in Iraq and in Syria. In Syria, they had seen horrific car bombings in their neighborhood. Um, over a hundred of their neighbors had died. They'd lived in a very violence-prone area, and all the parents kept their children out of school for the year following because it was deemed just too dangerous to be out in the street walking toward the school. The teacher was experienced, and he knew what kinds of things they might have lived through, but I was able to give him then this, the specific narrative um, with the help of, of the interpreter and the home visit. Uh, he did have in his room, Eddie Williams had in his room, the help of a therapist um, that Jewish Family Services was paying for. And I thought that was extraordinary to have school-based therapy. Um, but because she didn't speak Arabic and um, she had limited uh, translation services, I think I was able to give even the therapists some of the story that was uh, missing for her. She, she had access to some interpretation services, but... Um, she at that point had not done a home visit and i think you know there's just a lot that you glean in a home visit so i was trying to share with them everything i learned as they were sharing their classroom with me 
Sure. And um, that's great that you're able to do that and share that. I'm sure a lot of that information was valuable. So unpacking some of that, you got into a little of um, this idea of there's this term that's been coined that's used quite frequently in academia and the media, uh, super diversity and how, you know, we have these classrooms that are full of people who speak different languages and trying to look at that as an asset rather than a barrier um, can certainly be difficult. And then you got into something that I think is really important. And we've actually done a couple episodes on this, which is the idea of family engagement. And I was, I was really happy to read about you sort of visiting these, these people's homes. And you just told the story of going over there and having this, this feast. And so I wanted to talk about one specific piece. You write in the book that visiting a family's home, I had stepped into an alternate universe culturally. Um, and then you go on to visit, the, um, to, to describe the visit uh, to the home of the two boys from the Democratic Republic of the Congo that you mentioned, Solomon and Methuselah. Um, and you you get into speaking to their, you spoke about team, speaking to his father, um, their father, whose name, could you pronounce his name for me so I don't get it wrong? Yeah, Kiza. Kisa, I definitely would have got that wrong. So um, Kisa says he, you know, he's happy to have found work as a dishwasher, but he, he ta- you talk about how um, one of the most difficult parts for him living in the United States was how people seem to kind of prejudge him. Sure. Visiting Solomon and Methuselah at, at home was um, also a really amazing experience, and I feel really fortunate that they were welcoming me. Um, their father was incredibly dignified. Um, when he uh, met with me, he was wearing, you know, a, a, a collared shirt and nice trousers, almost looking like he would dress for a job interview or something like that. Um, and just his manner, he, he had this very kind of um, self-possessed, dignified uh, manner. Over time, what became clear to me was that in their village where um, he was raising the boys and where he had grown up, uh, he had acquired a 10th grade education. He spoke fluently Swahili, French, and two tribal languages. Knowing four languages, knowing how to read and write, he was much better educated than a lot of people in their home village. And he he became um, both a teacher there and also kind of a a village leader. Um, He was helping coach other farmers on how to raise more food. Um, And he was kind of serving in almost like an elected official role. He did run for public office at one point. Um, And then when he arrived here in the, in the U S I think, you know, whereas he had been looked up to in his home village here, he just felt looked down upon all the time. And he was talking about how, um, in his workplace, anytime he demonstrated any kind of sophisticated understanding of like world politics or um, um, aspects of American culture or um, just just a kind of a global perspective, people would be very surprised at his intelligence and he could feel that surprise. And he would wonder like, well, why do they think I wouldn't know anything? And um, the way he expressed it to me was um, literally he said, uh, if here, if you're black, you're nothing. It's it, it, people are surprised if you know anything at all. They treat you like you would know nothing, and he just felt this great dissonance between how he was used to being treated at home and how he was being treated by everybody here. And I think he was just running into the the structural racism in American society and experiencing it for the first time as something brand new when he wasn't used to it. And so it was very obvious 
to him in the way that it can only be very obvious for somebody who's immigrating here and has never never seen it before. I think if, if you're black here and you grow up here, you're swimming in that all the time. So you notice it, but it's not new to you. It's not a shock or a surprise. So he was able to, to articulate it in a kind of a different way than somebody who's grown up here their whole lives. Yeah, and I thought that that's a great way to explain it. Um, an unfortunate way to explain it, but but a great way to explain it nonetheless. And to me, it really came through and it was really um, kind of shocking, you know, to, to even though in some ways, you know, you, you hate to say that it's kind of expected. Um, it, it was it was just to hear that perspective from someone, like you said, who came from someplace else, had no preconceived notions, had I was very sure of himself for good reason um, to feel that I think really um, does a good job building empathy um, in the reader. And I really enjoyed um, reading about that. I want to go back to the classroom a little bit. Something that that I was really interested in was um, that, you know, throughout the book, you, you chronicle some of the kind of typical distractions and and things that happen in a typical high school classroom. I, I was a high school teacher for a long time. You know, everything from text messages to social media to chatty behavior. But we just talked a little while ago about the silent period. And so these are all things that you want to see socially and, and with language students using it. Um, but in some cases, uh, it can be really difficult to kind of um, dissect that dichotomy between, all right, there's just chatty behavior going on, there's social media going on, where do I draw the line as a teacher? Um, there is a quote that uh, that we pulled out that I'd love for you to read as well. Sure, I think you mean this quote. The students were increasingly engrossed with one another, which forced Mr. Williams to exert more discipline. And at the same time, they were able to comprehend more English, which was how they could interact more. The double effect of all this learning was amusing to observe because Mr. Williams was gaining control of the room academically and losing control socially. We had traveled a long way from August when the room had been so hushed and watchful. So I'm sure there are many teachers who are kind of nodding their head right now, um, thinking that I've seen that before. Could you talk about the balancing act that you observed um, in the classroom with all these things as the years as the year progressed? Yeah, you know, in the book, I kind of describe these moments where I get to step out of the classroom with the teacher on his break, and he had the habit of. Um, Upstairs was what was called the copy room, and there was a copy machine, but it was really a break room. And he would eat lunch up there or do lesson plans up there. And we would discuss what had just happened in the room. And he explained to me one day during a break in the copy room that he was kind of allowing some of this rambunctious behavior because the kids were communicating with one another in English. And he thought they were so much more interested in speaking to one another than they were, say, to an authority figure, that they were much more highly motivated to actually try out their new English and verbalize things and experiment. And um, so he was fostering some kinds of competition and friendship and, and, and these interactions in the classroom. Um, so for example, he, he created the, um, this like the Olympics, that he called it Newcomer Olympics, where they were competing with one another over a period of several weeks. And the room did get really rambunctious as they were trying to win one game or another and the kids were teasing each other and flirting with each other and doing all kinds of things. But that energy in the room, which he controlled very well, um, was fostering just a real blossoming of language as the as the kids were uh, learning who they wanted to be friends with and who they wanted to compete with and who um, you know they wanted to have 
lasting relationships with outside of the classroom. He said to me at one point that he thought, you know, half the learning that they would do would happen in peer-to-peer -peer interactions. Half the learning would happen between himself and his students, but he thought fully half the learning in the room was gonna take place in these peer interactions. So he wanted those interactions, and yet he had to also keep like moving forward with his lesson plan at the same time. And it was a very tricky balance. There was just one or two times that I write about towards the very end of the school year where it was like the energy just took over the room and he almost lost control. But then in, in very clever ways, he sort of um, turned that to, to his advantage. And I, I write about that as well. Yeah, to be a fly on the wall with that must have been really interesting. I mean, it's it's not easy. You know, no. you have on the one hand, you're saying what an amazing thing these students are speaking with one another, and they're so they're doing what we what we really want them to be able to right. do. But as a teacher, you have a, you know you're pushed to teach the content as well, and you really want to get students to a place where they can have academic conversations, not just social conversations. Um, and I think you do a really good job describing that. I think it's woven. You're right. There are a couple moments in the book where you where you mention that even if you don't mention it blatantly, I feel like you feel it. You know that students, or at least as a teacher, I was reading it thinking, oh, like they're looking at, you know, their cell phones right now. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And then the other thing that I think you talk about a little bit as well is that, like, at times, you know, when when students are distracted by social media, perhaps it's because they are trying to keep up with events that are happening in their home countries that are probably a, a, a big burden for them at that moment, which is can be also very difficult to learn under those circumstances. Yeah, the, the use of cell phones was tricky because um, the, the teacher was allowing the use of cell phones for translation purposes. And the cell phones were the main device by which most students could find an English term um, if they didn't know the word in, in English. And they did use them very legitimately for that purpose. But I was noticing the Iraqi sisters sometimes just texting. And at first I felt a little like disapproval. They were hiding, you know, the phones under the desk when the teacher had his back turned and he couldn't see. Um, but when I asked them what they were doing, it turned out their best friends from Damascus who had not been chosen to resettle in the US were making that long trek walking um, to a point where they were gonna take a boat um, over to Greece and they were they were making this incredibly perilous journey trying to get to Germany to Europe to safety um, so they were fleeing Syria and it was the middle of winter a very dangerous time when the seas were very rough and they were just the the two girls in the classroom Jacqueline and Mariam were just obsessed with the safety of their friends were they going to make it or not on this trek to Europe and I could see that they were kind of managing their transition out of that war zone themselves and the tension they felt. And um, th they were coming to terms with the fact that they were in a safe country, even as they were watching their friends try to make it to safety themselves. They were holding on to some of those original relationships from Syria because it was part of their transition. They couldn't just go from one reality to the other with no, no transition phase. Uh, and once their friends like made it safely to Germany, they really stopped texting um, nearly so often. And it, it was kind of a way that they managed their own emotional journey, I thought. Sure. Yeah. And that's hard. I mean, you know, for a young person to be yeah. to be connected in that way, but they feel it's important and clearly it is important. And so as a teacher and as an educator, understanding that that's the case, understanding more than just, you know, my role here is to teach these students English and to get them in a place where they can learn academically 
but also understanding the the kind of the, the greater good and what's what's happening with them. And that's actually a good transition to talk a little bit about the, the idea of you kind of weave the idea of community and companionship for these families um, throughout the book a little bit. There's one there's one part where you're quoting a state official who's in charge of resettlement in Colorado. Um, there's a quote there from page uh, 288, and I think you're actually quoting that particular person, but would you mind reading that piece as sure. well, the most important thing? Our state legislator had what they called Refugees 101, and I went and I, I, I described that in the book. And the official, uh, it's actually a small child in the audience who said, what can we do? What's the mo most important thing we can do? And it's like all these adults, you know, in charge of policy had been asking other kinds of questions. And, and really, this was the most important question of all. And it was interesting that it came, you know, from a, a, a child in the audience. Perfect. And the official, yeah, said, the most important thing the rest of us had to offer refugees was our time. Companionship, spending meals with these families, getting to know them personally meant more than anything else. It meant more than money and more than material aid and more than donations of furniture. They were far from home and achingly lonely and they wanted to feel recognized. And that quote for me, that, you know, that, that made me want to do something that made me want to bring people into my home and share a meal together and just understand that we're all humans and there's people that are feeling lonely and just, we just want to bring people together and accept them. Um, I'm curious as to how did that sort of manifest itself in the students, that emotion, that, that kind of raw feeling of loneliness, how did that manifest itself in some of the students that you worked with or that you were observing? You know, I think that loneliness that we're talking about right now became um, an overarching theme over the course of the year. And um, it's something that I think anybody can empathize with. Uh, sometimes stories of refugees sound very foreign or um, like they're taking place in, in other corners of the world where life is very different. But essentially, the refugee story is one of being uprooted, finding yourself in a new place and not having any friends. And, you know, many of us can imagine that situation. Um, it's compounded, it's at sort of an exponentially higher level because of all the communication difficulties. So in this room, there were a number of kids who were the only one uh, who spoke a particular home language. Um, there was a boy who spoke Bhutanese, who, he was the only Bhutanese speaker, a boy who spoke Karen, another who spoke Kareni, a young woman from Vietnam who spoke Vietnamese. They had no peer who spoke their home language in the room. They just had nobody with whom they could have any kind of interaction or real conversation with for months. So the loneliness that any teenager might feel in a new school setting or in a new classroom at the start of a new year was unfolding at kind of an epic level. And then over the course of the school year, you know, to watch these same kids, um, you know, there was this moment three quarters of the way through the school year where they all had enough English to now flirt and have sleepovers. And a boy from El Salvador proposed to one of the sisters from Iraq in math class and drew a little uh, blue ink ring on her ring finger. And they had just become ordinary teenagers doing all the things that ordinary teenagers will do to assuage loneliness, to seek companionship, to find friends, to find someone to love, try an adult relationship for the first time in their lives. And that was just an amazing, transformation to witness. 
yeah, how it happens um, in school like that with young people is probably different than 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 how it happens with with their parents, for example. Another another right. topic for another podcast episode, but I think worth um, worth mentioning. So zooming out a little bit as as the book progresses, you make clear connections between the climate itself and, and the climate in the country politically and, and what's happening in the world. It's a very unique time um, when you're writing this book. Um, so the, my question is, do, do you think that, that schools like South are, are kind of a microcosm of what's happening in our society at any given time in history? I felt when I spent time inside of South High School that I was getting a glimpse of the future or what this country could become. Um, I say that because South is an unusual school in that um, about half the school's native born and about half the school is foreign born. But the school does an extraordinary job of integrating the two halves of the student body. And so, for example, in the student senate, where, where I would visit periodically, um, you saw foreign born students, including some who had been refugees and who had been in Mr. Williams' newcomer classroom in their freshman year now several years later serving in student government. So they were becoming not only proficient at English, they were becoming fully integrated into the student society there. They were becoming student leaders. Uh, there was a young woman from Iraq who was one of the top students leading the student senate. And um, she was an example to sort of all the Middle Eastern kids in the high school. So I felt that that structural equality that was being achieved um, just this school year, just, just right now, uh, South just elected a, a student from Syria, he's half Iraqi, half Syrian, as their student president, he's a co-president of the student body and as head boy of South. Um, so you're seeing there um, no stigmatization. Um, you're seeing really full social integration of the foreign-born kids. With, with the native-born kids, and both groups are learning, like the American-born kids are becoming far more global-minded as they get to know their peers from all around the world, and these kids from all around the world are becoming much more proficient in English and understanding the U.S. through these kinds of friendships and interactions they have in AP classes, student senate. Um, I think that's really something to aim for, and not every school that is serving English language acquisition kids manages this level of social integration. And, and that's what I saw that, that made me feel very uplifted and sort of changed by, by witnessing what was possible. And the kids themselves were becoming, I think, people who are going to emerge as leaders in the community. It was amazing to see them develop those sorts of skills. Yeah, that's beautiful. And one thing that I want to unpack what you said, I think is also the thing is just as important. You know, our focus here is talking about these students that you were, were observing over the course of the year and that you wrote about these refugee students. But you mentioned there that, you know, they had a profound or continue to have a profound impact on the native born students who are there. And I think that's, that's so essentially important that these students have so much to offer and can teach right. us and the students that are going to that school who are native born students um, so much. And, uh, it sounds like S South is doing a really great job sort of, um, for lack of a better term, kind of leveraging all those assets and bringing them together, or they just have the structures in place so that it can happen organically, which is probably the way that it should happen anyway. Yeah. They've been doing this for 20 years and I think they do have a lot of experience. What you're describing, you know, I found my experience being in this one classroom 
the students represented an almost perfect microcosm of the global refugee crisis. If there's a refugee producing country, somebody from that country wound up in this classroom. They taught me so much about the global refugee crisis that I never saw represented in our newspapers that I didn't understand until I was in that classroom. And, um, you know, some of the deep lessons were um, incredibly meaningful to me, even though I've been reporting on Im immigration and um, uh, to some extent refugees for, for a while now, I learned so much from these students. So you're describing them as assets. That's certainly the role they played in, in my life. Uh, they were a gift to get to know. Yeah, and you do a wonderful job in the book, um, you know, handing those experiences over to the reader so that we can learn as well, because I agree with you, you know, there's, there's so much you can read or understand from the news and and reading the newspaper, um, but but hearing these stories um, is really a great way to, uh, to learn about the experiences of these students and what they can bring. So I want to shift gears a little bit, and um, we talked about the three books that you've written. We, we've focused in on the newcomers, but I'm curious if there's, I always like to ask people this question, if there's a book or any other resource that has had a profound effect on you, either personally or professionally, that you like to share. And it doesn't have to be anything about English language learners, or it can be really anything, but I always like to ask that question. Um, there's a number of books that I... Um, have loved that are in the narrative nonfiction form, which is the, the the genre that I'm in. But the book that sprang to mind when when you asked me that question is actually a book called Immersion by Ted Conover, and um, it's a little bit of a, 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 a it's like a journalistic how-to book. And so I don't know that it helps um, everybody in your audience like teachers or those who care about education exactly but it's a really interesting book in how to do immersion in the right way and i actually think there are some lessons in it that do translate over to other disciplines um, ted conover is a journalist who um, he teaches at nyu in their journalism program he, he's actually i think just started running that program um, but this book immersion talks about how do you if you're a journalist who comes from a more privileged background and you are reporting on um, a, a segment of the population that is less wealthy than you that occupies in our society a less um, a, a high socioeconomic status um, how do you try to achieve parity or equality what what are the what are the moral questions that you wrestle with when you when you're in this situation um, I found it a really great guide for how to um, try to be an ethical human being in, in this setting. And I actually think it, it, it probably is would be interesting reading for somebody who was working with students and who was not of their background and was wondering um, where the right boundaries are or how, how do you care for the student and yet, um, uh, you know, be able to teach every day and not expend yourself so much on, on um, taking care of one student that you can't take care of the whole room. Uh, so that was the book that, that leapt out for me, Immersion by Ted Conover. Great. Well, I think it's timely. I mean, there's definitely a lot of articles right now looking at Education Week and the 74 and other, and other sources that I look at frequently. Uh, as the school year begins here, you know, there's a lot uh, of, of press about, you know, 
we have a lot of teachers who don't necessarily represent the communities they serve. So it sounds like, and I have not read the book, I will, um, but uh, it sounds like this might give um, a little bit of advice as to how to handle that kind of situation. And we will include um, that book as well as other resources in the show notes. Am I allowed to mention another book too? Of course, you can mention as many as you want. Um, well, just as you were saying that, um, I also am a huge fan of Jeff Hobbs and um, his book, The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, is the story of um, Jeff Hobbs as a, a white, wealthier student going to Yale. Um, his roommate, Robert Peace, um, African-American, grew up in Newark. Um, they lived together for four years at Yale. And after um, their college years, um, Robert Peace is killed in a really tragic accident in a drug deal gone wrong. But the book shows that really Yale itself and any school like Yale essentially failed Robert Peace and failed to integrate him fully um, into the experience of being a student at Yale. And because it's written by a white author who was this black stu fellow student roommate over four years, it's a very intimate look at all the ways in which Jeff Hobbs fit in at Yale and his roommate Robert Peace didn't. Like Jeff Hobbs had friends in the student body and Robert Peace's friends were the cafeteria staff. And he, Jeff just documents in this very um, intimate way uh, how some institutions can fail to fully integrate kids of color. And that's another another book I would throw out there that might be a little bit more on the education subject itself that teachers might love. Great. Well, we certainly appreciate um, two for the price of one. That's great. Yeah. And so last question and an important question. Um, how can people find the book, The Newcomers, um, and or learn more about the work that you are doing? Um, thank you for asking that question. I have a website. It's helenthorpe.com. And pretty much everything is up there. Um, the book is on Amazon and you can get it on Kindle. My local independent bookstore is called The Tattered Cover here in Denver and you can order it from The Tattered Cover or your local independent bookstore as well. Um, I have to mention the independent bookstores because The Tattered Cover does amazing things to support all of the authors who live here in Denver. And I'm uh, uh, over there you know, once a week, it's my home away from home, but Whenever I go, they've got one, two, or three of my books on display at any particular time, and they, they really do an incredible job promoting local authors, and I feel like I, my career wouldn't be where it is without that sort of support. So support your local independent bookstores, even if the books cost a little more than at Amazon, you're, you're, you're creating a, a, a literary community uh, that we need. Great. Well, thanks for mentioning that. And for what it's worth, um, I read the book and I have, uh, I'm looking at it right now and it's full of notes and little bookmarks and all kinds of quotes, many of which did not make it into this interview. So I would highly recommend reading the book, particularly, um, well, I was going to say particularly if you're not in the classroom, but regardless, I think it's a really great um, uh, way to um, learn about these, these wonderful students. And it was just a really unique way to go about doing it. So Highly recommend it. And Helen, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on and I look forward to uh, collaborating with you in the future. Thank you so much for having me on. I really love the questions that you asked. 
Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.